taken from Matthew chapter 9, if you'd like to turn there with me, um, starting in verse 35, and we're going to go through to verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 15. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. The sermon title this morning from this text is The Lord of the Harvest. And I just want to remind you over that we're going and preaching through the Gospel of Matthew as we go. We have... We're now a fair, a fair distance in, but the, remember that the, the Gospel of Matthew is organized into an introduction, a series of five major narratives, in between which each of them, there is, there, uh, there, there is a narrative in between each one of these uh, discourses or teachings. These five teachings um, are, are discourses that are there. In fact, Pastor Steve uh, one of the weeks gave you a little piece of paper with that outline on it. 
And if you have it, you know, you, you might want to take it out for a second. I'm just going to go through real quickly so we can see exactly where we are in, in Matthew's gospel. So it, it goes, it begins with the, the introduction, which is the first four chapters of Matthew. Then we have the Sermon on the Mount, which is the first discourse or teaching um, that we have in chapters 5 and 7. Then we have a narrative in chapters 8 and 9, which we have just are finishing up right now. And we're going into the next uh, teaching or, or, or discourse. And that would, we would call that the, uh, the apostolic discourse or apostolic instructions. Um, and that's, that's in uh, chapter 10. Of, of the Gospel of Matthew, and that's where we are, and then so on and so forth. Eventually, we get to the Olivet Discourse, uh, uh, a final narrative, and then the conclusion of um, Matthew's Gospel is the Great Commission, right? We have the Great Commission at the end. So um, just to give you an idea where we are in the landscape of the, uh, of the Gospel of Matthew, um, last time, Pastor Steve preached a sermon entitled, Jesus Continues to Heal, and this finishes up the narrative section in chapter 9 that we were just talking about. Um, in, in that, there were four healings. And our, our text this morning begins that next discourse. Um, it's the apostolic discourse and apostolic instructions in which Jesus gives the, the first instructions to his disciples about the mission uh, of the church. The word apostle comes from the Greek Apostolos, meaning literally one who is sent off. This is usually related to delivering a message. You, you might think of, uh, of, of an apostle as an emissary or an ambassador that takes a message to somebody on behalf of, of uh, the one who sends them, right? And that, that's where we find ourselves here uh, this, this morning, um, we see Jesus sending out his 12 disciples who, in essence, become apostles as they are sent. In fact, I think that's the way the narrative reads in, in, in multiple places in the Gospels, right? It starts off the 12 disciples sent as apostles, right? Well, we even see that little transition in, 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 the, uh, in the Greek there. And we're going to see in the, in the Gospel of Matthew two sendings. Um, we're dealing with the first sending uh, this morning, and that's the sending of the twelve disciples or apostles to the nation of Israel. And later, we're going to see a sending in the Great Commission that has a much broader and larger scope. After the death, resurrection, uh, and ascension of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, right? I believe that some of the instructions that we're going to see in in chapter ten. In the Gospel of Matthew, or kind of a maybe even a little bit of a mashup between this first sending and this and this last sending, um, and there's some there's some instructions that apply to both of the sendings, and I think Pastor Steve will be dealing more with those texts than I will this morning because they don't fall within my section going up to verse 15, um, but but you'll you'll see you'll see some of that that there's. Maybe a little bit of a, a, a discontinuity in there, but Matthew is, is, is pulling together his, his, his gospel um, for, for purpose, um, and, and he has things that he's trying to tell us in the way that he has organized this section, um, and we hope that we'll be able to, to, to bring that out to you uh, in coming weeks.
So let's, let's just jump into it. Verse 35, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in, his, in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So we see Jesus in his ministry here. We see this is, a, this is actually a repeated phrase, this idea of preaching the, the, uh, the, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, kingdom and healing of the diseases of every kind and every affliction. These are, these are uh, things that we see as early as Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus began, began to preach. And you remember in 417 what Jesus said. He said he was preaching saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? This is the gospel of the kingdom of God or the gospel of the kingdom of heaven, right? This is Jesus' ministry. This is what he's been about. We see it later um, as Jesus is going through Galilee, the same words are used again, um, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing of all these diseases and afflictions. Again, the same, Jesus is going back and he's doing the same thing. He's doing this mission that he has, uh, this ministry that he has. Now, in verse 36, it says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So as Jesus is doing this ministry of proclaiming the gospel and healing disease, he sees the condition of the people. And it's not good. He describes them as harassed and helpless. Without a shepherd, without any kind of leadership. And In fact, this is the first time, too, that we see that Jesus is using this analogy of sheep and shepherd. You're going to see that throughout the Gospels, right? Jesus is, what, the good shepherd, right? And the people as sheep. Jesus' description of the situation is an indictment of the religious institutions and leaders of Jesus' time. Why did the people lack a shepherd? Were there no religious leaders, no, nobody to guide and care for the people? In, in, in Jesus' time in, in, in the nation of Israel? No, we know that's not true, right? There were many religious leaders, right? There were synagogues all over the place. And there were, each of these synagogues had a ruler that was in charge of that synagogue, right? So, so why, why were these people in such poor condition? Did these leaders, were they incompetent? Probably not. Like they, they, I mean, that was a very prestigious thing to be in that time, right? These were probably the best people, right? They're not incompetent people. So that, that's not it. Did they not care? Well, we might be getting warmer, in fact, I think it's worse than they, they didn't care. These men that were charged with being leaders in the nation of Israel were the very people who were harassing and throwing burdens on the lost sheep of Israel. And Jesus saw this. So this is a great indictment of the religious leaders of that time. So Jesus sees the problem, and what is his solution to that problem? Well, 
Was his solution that we go find some laborers and, and, and you know, with the skills needed to take, you know, to go and take out an ad, maybe, you know, in Indeed or a Monster and Glassdoor, you know, with a list of requirements of things that, that we need so that, uh, that they can go and take this message and, and be the ambassadors? Um, no, Jesus didn't do that, right? He, he did not do that. He said, Jesus says, pray. Pray to who? He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest. Pray to the Lord of the harvest for what? To send laborers into the harvest, to gather the harvest. If the harvest is to be collected, it must be done by those sent by God. Not those who are self-appointed, and not those that are appointed by man-made institutions. Right? Laborers must be sent by the Lord of the harvest. And that's why we pray. That's why the call was to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. Jesus moves on in chapter 10. So he doesn't just say to pray, he actually acts as well. And this is the calling of the 12 apostles. And I'm not going to reread that section, but I want you to note that there are 12 of them. And this runs parallel to what? It runs parallel to the 12 tribes of Israel. I, I think I heard it whispered out there. That is the correct answer, and this is very significant, right? This is a a sense in which we see this parallel between the Old Testament or the Old Covenant people of God and the New Testament and the New Covenant people of God, right? We have a transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, and we see the the New Covenant people of God are initially represented by the 12 apostles, right? We see that parallel between the two. And who do we have? So we have Peter and Andrew, their brothers, right? That we were introduced to them in the book of Matthew in, in chapter four, where Jesus told them that he, they would come and follow him and they, he would make them fisher of men, fishers of men. Then we also have James and John, um, the sons of Zebedee, uh, all referred to elsewhere in the Bible as the sons of thunder, right? The, the ones that wanted to rain down lightning from heaven, on the, uh, the, the village that uh, rejected uh, their message. Also fishermen. We see Philip and Bartholomew, also called Nathaniel of Cana in, the, in John's gospel. We see Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. And it's interesting to see Matthew. Uh, it's a very humble thing for him to continually refer to himself as the tax collector, right? This was not a title I think that he was proud of, yet it makes it multiple times into his gospel, um, giving all the glory for his salvation to, to where it belongs to God. We have John, uh, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus. It's interesting that they're, they're listed in pairs, and we see in, in, in the, the Gospel of Mark that they're sent out in pairs, um, you know, two by two. I think there's, there's something to that, right? I think that we ought to, 
take, we, ought to, we ought to think about that in terms of our ministry and that it's good to, for, for us to go together in that ministry and not try to be lone rangers in, in, in our Christian ministry, right? That, that, I think that's a, a lesson that we can glean from there. Another thing to note is that this is a ragtag group. It was a group that was chosen and sent by God. And if we, in our infinite wisdom, were to, going back to my analogy earlier, were to place ads in Indeed or Glassdoor or Monster and have a hiring process, right, and screening process for, to put together a team that would take the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth and fundamentally transform the world, I doubt that we would have fishing as an essential skill, right? Probably wouldn't make the list, right? Or, or that we would consider skimming tax money from our own people as relevant experience. No, I, probably not, right? Nor do I think that we would consider ardent Israeli nationalism, Simon the Zealot, as a person that would be compatible with the mission to usher Gentiles into the kingdom of the Jewish, Jewish Messiah, right? This is a ragtag group of men, seemingly unqualified for this mission. Yet, God chooses them, and they change the world, because those are the ones that God sent. Those are the ones that he chose. He chooses like the world does not choose, right? What? To shame the things and the wisdom of this world. Why? To maximize his glory, right? But what else does Jesus do about the problem? Well, he sends them out, right? He sends them out. And we see this in, starting in uh, verse 5 of chapter 10. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, uh, enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, and it is right and good and, 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 and uh, absolutely appropriate that Jesus sends out these Apostles first to the nation of Israel. Jesus' ministry was to the nation of Israel. Why? Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Right? As he states it at the, at the, uh, to the Samaritan woman at the well, he says, salvation is from the Jews. Right? The word of God had been preserved for hundreds of years by the Jewish people. They were the chosen people of God. Um, and, and it, was, it was right and a good thing for, for, God, for God to send uh, his Messiah first to the Jewish people. And in many ways, um, the rejection uh, by, the, by the Jews um, foretells the, the, the spread of the gospel to the entire world, right? This, is, this was a necessary thing to happen to, to bring the old covenant to an end and to usher in the new covenant, right? And we, we see that. Um, we see that. We see that in First John, right? Where, where Jesus, or where, where, uh, where, where John tells us that, uh, that Jesus went to his own, but his own rejected him.
And Jesus calls them to also preach the gospel or proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, right? That's in the instructions up front. In the next section, in verse 8, Jesus says, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. This is all dealing with the consequences of sin. And he says, You received without paying, give without pay. Right? The gospel is free. It's freely offered and it's freely received. This is important. Indulgences should have never been a thing. Right? We see that right here on the face of the text. And Jesus says to them to acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. Uh, take no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals of staff. Don't, don't take provisions, he tells them. Right Now, later, later, in, in Luke chapter 22, verse 35, Jesus refers back to this first calling and sending. And he says, you took nothing, right? And you lack nothing. And they say, yes. He said, well, now it's different. Now it's different. You, you, you are to take provision. And oh, by the way, if you don't have a sword, sell a tunic and buy a sword because it's different now, right? In, in the second, in, in the second uh, Sending that, that Jesus does in the in the in the, in the great you know in the great commission whenever the gospel was taken to the uh, to the Gentile world, and there's there, there's a, I think there's a couple reasons for this here. One of them, some of them are very practical reasons. I think um, there's a sense in which the, these Jewish disciples of Jesus, as they go to Jewish towns and villages and to Jewish houses, there's an expectation that they would be received. Right? They would be received, and, they, and their needs would be met, right? ultimately by God, but through the Old Testament people of God. Right? So that, there's that sense as well. That later changes um, whenever the, 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 the Jews are more hostile to the message of the gospel, and the Gentile world um, is generally uh, hostile to Jews. Right? So it's a, it's a different time. This is the, the, the kind of a training ground to prepare the apostles for their ultimate ministry to take the gospel to everyone. So we see that here. Now, as we go on, we see that, you know, you know that the instructions on what they're supposed to do um, relative to going into houses and allowing their peace to fall on houses, and then also uh, this idea also of shaking off the dust from their feet as they leave a house that does not receive them. Um, this was uh, a common thing that Jews would do um, during that time. If a Jew was in a village, it was a Gentile village or a Samaritan village or a Gentile house, or they, you know, they wouldn't even go in, into houses, obviously. But if they were coming, traveling from, a, from a, one of those places, they would knock the dust off of their sandals before they would return home. Um, and so, you know, if any of these uh, Jewish houses or villages or towns rejected the disciples in this first mission, Jesus was essentially just saying to them, treat, treat them as you would treat Gentiles. It's essentially what he's saying. Um, and then we see at the end of this section, we see the, this idea that Jesus brings forward um, about the serious nature of this mission of taking the gospel of, of the kingdom of God to, to the world. 
um, first to, to the Jews and then eventually to the Gentiles, and the seriousness of, of rejection of said message. He says, Truly I say to you, it would be more bearable on that day for, of judgment, uh, on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for, for that town, that town that rejects, uh, that rejects you, rejects the message. Um, the, whenever we think about God's judgment in the Old Testament, and the, the, maybe the, the most wrathful thing that God did in the Old Testament, what's probably the first thing that comes to your mind? The flood, right? Probably the flood, I would think. Um, close second, though, I think, is Sodom and Gomorrah. So and we could see the seriousness of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. This was uh, fallen human beings let go into all kinds of debauchery and sin, right? And God rained down fire and utterly destro- destroyed those towns. Now, this is, this is pointing towards the ultimate judgment and the, those people being before the ultimate judgment seat of God. And what Jesus is saying is it's going to be more bearable for those people than for those who hear the gospel message and they reject it. It, it, it is so somber, uh, so sobering to me uh, to, 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 to think about that, to think about what's in stake um, in, in the spread of the gospel message. So we've kind of gone through the narrative here this morning. We see Jesus' mission. We see the reasons for everything that Jesus, the instructions that Jesus has made. We see the apostles being named and being sent and the mission that they have to spread the gospel and to heal and deal with the consequences of sin and minister to the consequences of sin. But what, what does that mean for us? What does, what does that mean for us today? Well, I have to ask the question, is, is, there, is there today a harvest to be collected? Yes, yes, absolutely there's a harvest. We have the great commission that we have been given as the church to accomplish. And what is that great commission? Go and make disciples, right? We are to go and make disciples. What does that mean? Okay, what does that mean? That, I, I, I take that to be the harvest that we're to, to be gathering today, but what does it mean to make disciples, Well, a disciple is one who follows Jesus, right? Remember the second part of that, teaching them to, de- to obey all my commands, right? So we have people that are, go from the category of being enemies of God, who disobey God's commands, disobey Jesus' commands, to a category of people who are now sons and daughters of God, who love God, and they obey Jesus, how do we get from there to here? Do we do it by logic and reason? No, we do not. It is a work of God, right? God, by His Spirit, regenerates hearts and He makes His enemies His children. So God does it, 
But something has to happen in order, order to do that. And I think the, 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 the reading from Romans this morning is, is essential. Right? There's a sense in which a lost sinner has to see the glory of God in order to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. But that seeing the glory of God comes by hearing the message of the gospel. And if you remember in Romans, it, it tells us that, um, that we are... We'll just, I'll just read it. For, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, right? So they, these are the people, that, every, that everyone there are the people that were enemies of God that become disciples and children of God, right? Disciples of Jesus and children of God. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they, be, how will they, how will they call on his, in him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are, they to, how are they to hear without someone preaching? Right? So this ministry that we have to be laborers in the harvest for our Lord is wrapped up in preaching. It's a message that must be delivered. It's a heralding of the kingdom of God. It's a message that has historical facts in it. Jesus came. He lived a perfect life, had a ministry on earth. He, he was crucified. He died on the, on the third day. He rose again. And he ascended into heaven. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he has full authority over everything. These are the facts of the message, right? And receiving that message um, will change a heart, right? God opens the eyes of a dead sinner that they can see those facts and the effects of those facts of what God did is transferred to them, right? They had only sin and punishment and debt in their account. And God takes the righteousness of Christ, applies it to their, their account. They're forgiven of their sins and they're justified before God, not because of anything in and of themselves, but because of what Christ has done and his righteousness in their place, in, in their account before a holy God. It's a tremendous thing that happens. But it comes by hearing the preaching of the gospel, right? So what should we do? Well, I, I think it's instructive to look at history. Right? So if we look at history... We can look throughout church history and we can see some of the, the men that God has called to be laborers in this field of harvest. One of those people was George Whitfield. And there's a, a biographer by the name of Arnold Dallimore who, who, who did an extensive biography of George Whitfield. He's, he, uh, 
uh, Delamore, I think, died in uh, the late, you know, maybe 1998, 1999 time frame. So this book is probably from, you know, his, his, his biography is from, um, you know, the 20th century. And but here's, listen to what he says about Whitfield, um, thinking about this, who, who we're looking for, what, what, what kind of laborers has God, look, uh, has, has God used in the past. Here's what he says. He says, yea, that we shall see the great head of the church, that's Jesus, once more, raise up unto himself certain young men whom he may use in the glorious employ. And what manner of men will they be? Men mighty in the scriptures, their lives dominated by a sense of the greatness, the majesty and the holiness of God, and their minds and hearts aglow with the great truths of the doctrines of grace. They will be men who have learned what it is to die to self, to human aims and personal ambitions, men who are willing to be fools for Christ's sake, who will bear reproach and falsehood, who will labor and suffer, and whose supreme desire will be not to gain earth's accolades, but to win the master's approbation when they appear before his awesome judgment seat. They will be men who will preach with broken hearts and tear-filled eyes and upon whose ministries God will grant an extraordinary effusion of the Holy Spirit and who will witness signs and wonders following in the transformation of multitudes of human lives. This biographer was motivated Essentially, in his book, pray, pray for such men to be raised up. So we see the need. We see also the fact that the landscape that we have right now in the evangelical church in the world, especially Western Christianity, is terrible. It's a terrible landscape right now. We have more unchurched people than we've ever had in this country. Right? And, and we might say, okay, well, that, you know, that, that's, that's terrible. But the churches that we do have, you know, mainline denominations have traded the real gospel for social gospel, right? We have the non-denominational big church movement that's gone to marketing and conversations and rock band concerts to attract people. Those churches, the joy of those people are paper thin. It's a mile wide and a millimeter deep. We have false religions. We have, we have secular humanism is the religion of the day. Right? It's sacrament. One of its sacraments, as we're finding out in the political forum this, these days, is uh, abortion. Right? And not to mention the false religions, uh, uh, you know, Eastern religions and all the mismatch that's out there. I wonder how many people have even heard the real gospel in this country. We need to pray that God would raise up men and he would open the door for this gospel message to go out. That people would have the opportunity to hear it and that he would get for himself those who are his. 
when I was thinking about this message and these texts that I was going to have to preach on, I could not help but think of a sermon that I heard a number of years ago. Um, and, and in particular, the prayer at the end of the sermon. This was a, a sermon by Pastor John Piper. Um, it was a sermon entitled, Why Expositional Preaching is Particularly Glorifying to God. It was from the T4G 2006 conference. Um, in that sermon, you know, uh, John, or, uh, John Piper, he, he puts forward the idea of expository exaltation as his definition of true gospel preaching. Every once in a while I go back and I try to listen to that message um, in order to uh, have a norming point for, for my preaching. Um, I don't know if it helps or not, but it, uh, it puts my heart in a better spot to, to, to get into, into this pulpit. At the end of this message, he prays that God will raise up preachers, laborers of the harvest. And when he, he, has, when he was assigned this text in Matthew... When, yeah, whenever I was assigned this text, I, I couldn't help but to think of this. And I want to share it with you this morning, so bear with me once more as I, I read this prayer that John Piper... And this, this is an ex, I think this is an example of what we ought to be praying for. What we, based on this call to pray for laborers of the harvest, this is an example of how we ought to pray, I think. He said this. He said, Father in heaven... Calling men into the ministry of the gospel and then inflaming them is your work. I can't do it. I so long and plead with you now that here in this room there would be an awakening to the weight of your glory, your radiance, your beauty, everything that shines out from you in the gospel of Christ, crucified, risen, and reigning over the universe. That that would land, take root, awaken, purify, and empower pastors. And Lord, that may that ripple effect of this conference be for the nations. Oh, that the church in Britain the church in America and the church in all the countries represented in this room and beyond would inflame, would awake to the value, the infinite value of the treasure that you are. Oh, that the, our hearts would have a Holy Spirit-given capacity to delight in you with the delight of your Son. These things I have spoken to you that my joy might be in you and your joy might be full in my Father. Oh God, make us branches abiding in that all-satisfying vine. We want to glory in our Redeemer. We want our people to see the Redeemer. We want to lift up our voices, lift up our lives Lay them out that people might come to see the glory of the Redeemer. Lord, whatever it means, I'm not sure I have done it justice. Whatever 2 Corinthians 4, 4 means and the miracles of the awakening to it in 4, 6, whatever it means, come and do it, I pray. For us, for our people, 
and for the glory of your great name. So abide in grace, church. I think the call is clear. And we have an opportunity even every Sunday morning. We have an opportunity to come in here and pray before the service starts. We start a little bit before 10 and we pray up to about 20 after 10. Come and pray for laborers of the harvest. Come and pray that God would uh, guide and direct the ministry of this church. That God would open up the mission field uh, to this church. That we would take that message of the gospel far and wide. We should also act, right? It's not just praying for others to do. There's things we all can do in regard to the mission field, into, the, to, into our, our spheres of influence with our evangelism. We ought to be pointing people to the Savior. We ought to be pointing people to good preaching, gospel preaching. Right? We ought to be inviting people to church. The fields are white. Just look around. Great opportunities where the, where the gospel has not been heard. And we, we need to start to take advantage of those opportunities and fulfill the mission of the church. In so doing, we get, we get to participate and be filled with, uh, be filled with joy and participation of God transforming enemies into his children. Let's pray. Lord God, I I thank you for the examples that your scriptures give us, that teach us about your heart, who you are, what's important to you, Lord. We know that above all, your glory And your great name is that which is most important for you because it is so infinitely valuable, Lord. I I pray that you help us to see the glory. That we see your glory, Lord. We see that, that, that infinite value. We see the wonder that you would send your son to die for sinners like us. And in so doing, transform us from those who hated you and disobeyed you into those who love you and obey and who are now your children. Lord, so fill us with purpose. That we can't even sleep without thinking about your gospel the ministry of your gospel. We we would think about you raising up laborers for the harvest. Lord, I, I pray that you would do a work in each and every one of our hearts, Lord, that you would rearrange our priorities. Lord, we're so distracted by this world, by the cares of this world. I confess, I, I am so distracted. Lord, give us focus on the things that are most important, namely your glory and the mission that you have for your church. 
I pray that you would raise up heralds, that you would raise up those who would faithfully deliver that message. Lord, I pray that you would support and protect them and that you would accomplish your mission, purchasing purchasing for yourself a people. Lord, I, I thank you once again that you've preserved this word for us by way of reminder, Lord, of what we are to be about. Pray all these things in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.